Hello, this is Kelly McGee, and today's date is September the 6th, 2020, and you're watching News You Can Use, and we've been listening to Noam Chomsky, and this is the last half. Please throw me out of my position as a special representative for the Middle East Quartet because I'm doing absolutely nothing for peace but enriching myself. Uh, or would it make sense for, uh, and you can run down the line. Now, there's very good reasons either to lie or just not to tell the truth. Uh, if politicians told the truth, I think you'd decide for yourselves. I think they would be saying what I was just talking about. They would be saying, we don't care at all about your security or your safety or your survival. We care about our power and about the power of the concentrated concentrated domestic power, which in our societies means basically the corporate sector. Now, it's not 100% the case, of course, you know, but it will be, it'll, there's a strong tendency for it to be the case for the people who reach the top. Uh, that's how they reach the top. But the real answer is we let them. And that's, our, that's what we're talking about ourselves now. Good to look into the mirror. Can the internet help? It's one of the ways in which the general population can try to counter the uh, extraordinary power of, uh, of, of concentrate, mostly concentrated economic power. But again, only if you use it. And uh, uh, you could say this, it's, it's, it's true whether there's an internet or not. Um, the internet does offer some new met, new options. It also offers new options for controlling and uh, suppressing. Uh, technology pretty much tends to be neutral. You can use it to liberate, you can use it to oppress, and the answer to which happens is in our hands. Um, the military-industrial complex, that's, of course, Eisenhower's phrase. Uh, interestingly, his phrase when he left office after having created through his eight years, a huge military-industrial complex. I can't honestly complain about it. That's one of the reasons I have a job. I teach at MIT, which is right at the center of it. Uh, 1950s and 60s, uh, practically the whole academic budget was paid by the Pentagon. But that tells you something. There was almost no military work. In fact, the only military work on campus was in the political science department. Political science department had something called a Peace Research Institute. And anyone who read Orwell knows exactly what that means. It was an institute working on counterinsurgency in uh, Vietnam and other such benign actions. But outside the political science department, there was no military work on campus but it was funded by the Pentagon. And that tells you something about the Pentagon 
on the so-called military-industrial complex that uh, is kept quiet. The Pentagon in the United States and comparable systems here and elsewhere are to a lot, I mean, they have a military function, but they also have another function. They create the economy of the future. They are systems by which taxpayers are misled, as Huntington said, you have to create misimpressions. Taxpayers are misled to create the profits of corporations for the future. Uh, you have, mostly you have, um, say, iPhones or something like that in your pocket. Uh, take a look at them. Uh, they, for example, they have in them a GPS. Where did the GPS come from? It was created by the U.S. Navy, the Navistar program. Uh, it has microelectronics, um, software, hardware, uh, created, almost all created for decades, mostly in the state sector, uh, under often in the U.S. Pentagon funding here, the counterpart. Uh, taxpayers pay for this because they think they're protecting their security. That's what they're told. But in fact, the government doesn't care about your security. What it cares is about its own power and security for corporate power. And the way the system works is the taxpayer takes the risks, uh, carries out the investment for decades, literally decades. Finally, something may come out which is profitable, and then the profit goes to the private sector. Uh, if, if we had anything remotely like capitalist systems, we don't, they would, uh, they would adhere to the capitalist principle that if an investor uh, takes risks and you know, invests and waits and takes risky steps, and if something comes out of it, the profit goes back to the investor. That's not the way it works here. Uh, the profit goes to people who had nothing to do with it. The risks are taken by you, often through the Pentagon and comparable systems. And if anything comes out, the profits go to Microsoft and Apple. Now, they didn't create it. They borrow, they take it. It's given to them. And it literally is decades. So computers were the first, the computer market, personal computer market, became viable uh, in 1977, I think it was. Apple was the first. That was about 30 years after the development of computers, almost all in the state sector, like in the building where I work. Uh, and it's the uh, if you uh, buy pharmaceuticals, let's say, the research, the basic research and development is pretty much done in the state sector. Uh, places like probably the biology lab right here probably gets government funding grants. And that's all across the board. Uh, when you look back at these, uh, I mentioned the Trans-Pacific uh, uh, Partnership. One part of that was leaked by WikiLeaks. It's secret, except for the corporate lawyers and lobbyists. But one part was leaked. It was the part on intellectual property. Uh, intellectual property is a polite term, a kind of a euphemism for government-instituted uh, monopoly pricing rights. That's what it really means. Uh, it, it, it means uh, extraordinarily high uh, patent rights, which have never existed in history, uh, for the pharmaceutical corporations and some other corporations. That's to keep the price of drugs up and make profits astronomical. Now, there's a pretext 
the pharmaceutical corporations say, look, we need that for research and development. That's been investigated. Turns out that probably at least half of the R&D is not done by the pharmaceutical corporations at all. It's done by the state sector and so on. And that's an underestimate because if you take a close look, the part that's done by the pharmaceutical corporations is towards the marketing end. Like, you know, flip around a molecule to get a new drug. But the basic research, the hard, costly, risky research, that's done by people like you. You pay for it through your taxes. And the pharmaceutical corporations rip off the profit. Actually, there is a study by a one study by a very good American economist, Dean Baker, who suggested, estimated what would happen if R&D was 100% funded by the public and the pharmaceutical corporations were compelled to go on the market to sell what they produce. It turns out there'd be a colossal saving for the public and, of course, a sharp reduction in uh, uh, profits of the big industries. That's intellectual property. That's the part of the Trans-Pacific Partnership that was leaked. But going back to the military-industrial complex, it's a kind of misleading term. It really refers to most of the advanced economy, uh, which in our societies is uh, substantially state-based. And incidentally, that goes back hundreds of years. You take a look at British economic development. It wasn't through the market. It was through powerful state intervention. Same with the United States, same with Germany, Japan, France, uh, every developed society, Asian tigers, and so on. Well, we have a few questions already from um, elsewhere, so here are, I'll just edit them. Um, um, apologies to those whose questions are not read out. Um, you um, you'll get this quite quickly. How long before the chickens come home? To, how long before the chickens come home to roost? <laughs> is one question. Uh, another one is uh, the late Robert Dahl argued that we live in a polyarchy, not a democracy. Um, do you agree? And the final question I will mention here is that the IPC, IPCC wrote recently that climate change mitigation is unachievable if individual agents advance their own interests independently. Do you agree? Well, we know the answer to that question, but I'll say it anyway. It's well, the, sorry. the first and the third question are pretty similar. Uh, according to the IPCC, uh, the study, the studies that have followed it, I quoted a couple of them. The chickens are coming home to roost already, and they're going to, it's going to be pretty serious within a generation or two, very serious. I mean, a ten, just imagine what a 10-foot rise in sea level would be. Uh, most cities would be gone. Uh, the real uh, danger, the catastrophe, would be for the poor, as always. So Bangladesh, for example, is a coastal plain. There's millions, tens of millions of people will be wiped out. Uh, what kind of civilization could survive a rise of 10 feet in sea level? Just ask yourselves. And that's within sight. You know, your grandchildren. It's not that far. Um, is a change achievable? Technically, yes. 
but is it feasible is the question. And whether it's feasible or not goes back to your decisions. Will people make decisions that will do what ought to be done? Uh, most of the fossil fuels ought to stay in the ground, uh, just as Ecuador proposed. Uh, and uh, efforts should be made to develop alternatives. Now, that's not inconceivable. I mentioned Germany. Uh, Germany's on a path to uh, get to about 70% sustainable energy within a short term. Now, that might be impeded. If you read the U.S. business press, uh, they're very excited now about the fact that thanks to uh, enormous use of fossil fuels in the United States, energy prices are going down in the United States, and that'll make European manufacturing uncompetitive, and therefore Europe will have to back off on its conservation measures. That's a great thing. Uh, because then we'll make even more profit. And the steps that are taken towards saving uh, our grandchildren will be uh, dropped off. That is the moral calculus of Anglo-American state capitalism. We should recognize that. But it is technically feasible. There are all sorts of other possibilities that can be exploited, but uh, not without decisions. And if decisions are left in the hands of uh, state and private power, there is no reason to expect any amelioration of this. It's just getting worse, uh, like the quotes from Obama that I read. Polyarchy. Uh, polyarchy is a, you know, it's kind of a, I think he's, Dallas, basically right, but uh, why not simply say it? It's a plutocracy. Uh, the very rich make decisions in their own interests, and uh, most of the population is irrelevant. Actually, it's worse in Europe than in the United States. Uh, Europe, what's happened in Europe in the past 10 or 20 years is just astonishing. I mean, even the Wall Street Journal is astonished. Uh, they pointed out recently in an article, that, uh, which is correct, that in Europe, no matter what government is elected, you know, far left, far right, anything else. They follow exactly the same policies because they have no role in setting policy. The policies are set in the, in, by the bureaucrats in Brussels uh, under the shadow of the Bundesbank. So it doesn't matter what people think. In fact, there are some dramatic illustrations of that. Uh, a couple of years ago, the Greek Prime Minister, Papandreou, meekly suggested that uh, maybe there should be a referendum in Greece uh, so that people could say whether they wanted to accept the policies that were being dictated to them. Uh, he was denounced across the spectrum. Everybody denounced him as totally crazy. Now, how can you dare ask the population what policies ought to be in, in Europe? We know that policies have to be set by the bureaucrats and the bankers. Uh, polyarchy isn't really the right term for that. <laughs> Are you okay for one more round of questions? All right, let's uh, uh, just uh, see what we can find. Um, uh, it's very difficult. Lady, is that? I'm afraid my choices are going to be pretty arbitrary. Thank you. My question's about your final statement. You said uh, something like, we have to face our two major problems. 
and consider what we can do to avoid destruction. Think about what we can do. What would you advise we do when we leave this room? Because I feel quite depressed. Leave this room. What would you advise? Practically. Yes. As, yes. Given, given what you have talked about and the imminence this century, as it were, of disaster, what would you advise people to do? All right. Let's, let's, um, let's go over there. Um, you mentioned that the richest countries in the world are amongst those who most disregard the true security of their people in place of the interests of the wealthy and the powerful. However, it could be argued that the poorest countries in the world are doing exactly the same thing. How can we explain these differences in fortune given that each seems to pursue similar policy strategies? And is it a question of balance? Do you want to put that in a slightly simpler way? Don't read it. Just say. Um, I didn't get the word. The richest and the poorest countries in the world each seem to disregard the, the true security of, the, of their people, um, yet they seem to experience completely different fortunes. How can we explain this? Yeah. Is that clear? Good. Let's just try and take a few more because this will be the last cluster. Go on, Richard, at, at random. Um, in, in your talk, you um, talked mainly about the US and about Europe, um, but like, what, what do you think about the rise of China in terms of, um, like, you know, the, 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 fu the future of right. the human race, etc.? All right. I think we'll have to, we'll just, oh, I'll just take one last question over there, and then we'll have to stop. Richard, just over here in the corner. Can I ask you a personal ethical question? How do you square having your views with working um, in MIT? Oh, that's easy. All right, but as a PhD, as I, since I got my PhD from MIT, declare a conflict of interest here, I've got a last question for you, which is this. How do you imagine democracy, the shape and form of a democracy that would be open, pluralist, responsive? It would have to be a very different kind of democracy to standard electoral, short-term competitive democracy. But we also know that forms of direct democracy produce their own internal difficulties. So the question is, when you imagine a world beyond, as it were, state capitalism and competitive elitist democracy, what, what do you imagine? Okay, let me run through them in order. The first question is, as individuals, what can we do? The answer is practically nothing. Uh, what, what can be done, and always has been done in history, is by people who are organized, organized groups. The labor movement, civil rights movement, women's movement, anti-war movement, uh, environmental movements, these can do things. But if, and that's one of the reasons why powerful systems are so intent on atomizing people it's very striking take the uh, there's a lot of uh, propaganda about the wonders of markets actually we only have very limited markets but there are markets uh, markets are supposed to be magnificent because they increase your choices actually they restrict your choices you think about it for a minute uh, suppose I want to get home from work at night Okay, the market offers me a choice. I can have a Ford or a Toyota. It does not offer me the choice of a subway. What I want, 
what's good for me, what's good for the environment, what's good for my children, but that's not offered in the market. Markets offer individual consumption. And the enormous stress on the importance of markets is part of the way to drive people towards looking for yourself, amassing as many commodities as you can, forget everything else. Uh, in fact, uh, if you think about it, for every one of you has taken an economics course or read about it, then you know what markets are supposed to be. Uh, markets are supposed to be systems in which informed consumers make rational choices, right? I'm sure every one of you has turned on a television set. Now, what do you see when you turn on a television set? You see that there's a huge industry, public relations industry, which began in the United States and Britain, incidentally. Huge industry, which is designed to undermine markets. Every ad is an attempt to create an uninformed consumer who will make an irrational choice, right? Huge effort on the part of the business world to undermine markets, but to keep the aspect that's useful for profit and power, namely separating people from one another, focusing on individual choices, not working with your neighbor. So to get back to what you can do as an individual, not a lot, except what's always worked in the past and can work in the future. Um, the second question pointed out that the rich and the powerful states act pretty much the same way. Mostly that's true, not entirely. I mentioned the case of Ecuador, which did make an effort to do with its fossil fuels what ought to be ought to be done. But by and large, it's doubtless true. That's why I didn't really talk about states when I said that uh, these sectors of the world population that are leading the effort to try to avert the disaster are not states. They're organized groups. They're the indigenous populations. Uh, the First Nations in Canada, let's say, are not a state. They're the ones who are trying to stop the tar sands development, which is really lethal. Uh, in Australia, the uh, Aboriginal people are very battered and beaten. The, those who have survived the onslaught are in the lead in trying to stop the uranium, gold, uh, other mining. Uh, in India, there's a war going on with the tribal people trying to protect the uh, reserves from destruction by uh, uh, developmental pro uh, projects, you know, mining and so on, which will destroy them. Uh, and, uh, uh, but as far as going, make, keep, keeping just countries, it's true that you can't expect states to behave very differently from the way they in fact do under our general kinds of uh, organizations and structures but of course what the powerful states do is just a lot more significant it doesn't matter that much what Ecuador does it matters a lot what England and the US do uh, so that's and that's up to us and that gets to the next question what about China uh, China's in it's an interesting case it's, it's, it's a complex case uh, China uh, in the last China gained independence in 1949. Uh, from 1949 to 1979, 
about. That was the, roughly the Maoist period. Now, there was a lot of develop. There were a lot of horrors then. Uh, real atrocities took place. A huge famine killed maybe 30, 40 million people. But there are some interesting things that happened that aren't discussed very much. Uh, there are uh, interesting studies of comparing China and India. It's an interesting comparison. Uh, attained independence at the same time, two huge countries, They're both very poor. They were pretty similar in 1949, uh, late 40s. And uh, they developed differently during, during the next 30 years. Uh, the major, one of the major studies of this is by uh, a, a leading uh, economist, Omar Chasen, Nobel laureate in economics, and specialist on India. Uh, he and his uh, associate, uh, Jean Drez, an uh, economist in Delhi, a very good economist, uh, did a study of, uh, the, of mortality in China and India between 1949 and uh, 1979 when China shifted course. Turned out in this period, according to their calculation, a uh, hundred million people were killed in democratic capitalist India as compared with China because of what India didn't do. It didn't introduce uh, rural reforms, health clinics, uh, barefoot doctors, affected almost nothing for the peasant population. And the difference in mortality amounts to 100 million people. Uh, it's a pretty interesting, in itself, it's pretty striking, but it's particularly striking because what was happening in the propaganda system. Uh, right at this time, a book came out in France first, then translated into English, uh, called The Black Book of Communism. Uh, which is part of the huge propaganda onslaught against how terrible communism was. And yeah, it was pretty terrible, that's true. Uh, the book claimed that uh, 100 million people had been killed by communism. Okay? So here you have two studies. One of them says 100 million people were killed by the communists, but most of it not based on any data much, just talk. But let's say it's true. Another, a careful study saying that one democratic capitalist country killed 100 million people as compared with China. What was the reaction to the two? The Black Book of Communism, front page reviews all over, articles, uh, everybody knows about it, uh, tells us how horrible communism is. Uh, the Sendres study, I wrote about it. When uh, Amartya Sen got the Nobel Prize, I had a lot of interviews, and I tried to convince journalists to mention it. One did, an Indian journalist actually mentioned it. You're going to look pretty hard to find any reference to it. Well, that's one fact about China. Since China began its uh, shift towards a kind of a, whatever you call it, a state market system, uh, there has been substantial growth. Uh, mortality, on the other hand, is leveled. Uh, health of the population has not improved, barely improved. So, it, so you look at the rates it went. Mortality uh, improved very sharply up till 79, kind of levels off. Uh, but there's been a lot of development. Uh, China's raised more people out of poverty than 
the rest of the world combined by a long shot in the last uh, generation or two. And China's busy destroying the environment. Uh, they now produce more... Uh, 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 their, 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 their emissions rates are... Total emissions are now higher than the U.S. Uh, they are making some efforts to cut it back. Like China is the world leader in solar panel production. And not just the mass of it, but even high-technology solar panels. But uh, it's a pretty hard slog. China's still a very poor country. Um, there's a lot of talk about China taking over the world and so on. But if you look at the actual measures, say, Human Development Index in, of the United Nations, China's, I think, around 90th or something. It's an extremely poor country. It has enormous internal problems that the West doesn't have. It's had some spectacular successes. Uh, it, many, much of what it's doing is harmful. It's, uh, uh, we, we can't do much about China. We can do something about ourselves. But I think we should be pretty cautious about the speculations of China become the great superpower of the future. In fact, if you look closely at Chinese, Chinese exports, and ask how much value is added in China, you get quite a different picture of Chinese economic success. So like, say, an iPhone, if that's exported from China, we call it a Chinese export. But actually, the, the technology and the, the high technology and the software and the design mostly come from the peripheral industrial countries. Japan, South Korea, and Taiwan, and China adds the assembly, uh, and the West, of course, which invests in China. It's the fig I don't remember the numbers offhand, but the figures are very high. The, the actual value added in China is pretty slight. Well, that's going to increase over the years. China's climbing a technology ladder, but it's not a simple path, and I think we should keep those things in mind. There, there's some good studies of this. Uh, working at MIT, I don't find a problem with it. Uh, I don't have any objection to the fact that people have computers, uh, internet, uh, iPhones, and so on. I don't like the way it's done. It's done very undemocratically. Like people in the 1950s were not asked, uh, do you want your uh, your taxes to go into uh, profits for Apple 30 years from now and maybe an iPhone for your great-grandchildren? Or do you want your taxes to go into uh, health, education, uh, mass transportation, decent society, and so on? People weren't offered that choice. The choice they were told is, do you want to be destroyed by the Russians uh, or not? And if you don't want to be destroyed by the Russians, put the money into the Pentagon. Uh, as Huntington pointed out, that was a misimpression. But it's one that did lead to the economy. However, this has nothing to do with MIT. You know, if, if I didn't work at MIT, the same thing would happen. Uh, I worked there because I think it's a great university. I like it. Been, never thought of going anywhere else. But I don't see a conflict. In fact, it's kind of the other way around. When it, it, being at place like MIT or being in a country like England it gives you a chance to influence policy which you couldn't do if you were elsewhere that's significant 
So if you have a choice of what country to live in and you want to try, if you're interested in making it a better world, the best country to live in is the United States, even if it's maybe the most destructive country in the world, because that's where you can change policy. Uh, If you uh, live in, I don't know where, Ecuador, let's say, you can complain about policy, but you can't do much about it. Uh, So I don't see that as much of a conflict. Um, what would a democracy, yeah. democracy look like? Well, my own feeling is that uh, thinking about the various kinds of technical ways in which representation can take place uh, don't really carry us very far. Uh, almost because what really matters is what kind of socioeconomic arrangements are there. Now, here we go back to, I think you have to start with something more fundamental. Uh, there are plenty of hierarchic relations in society, all kinds, from family to international affairs. I think we should always ask the question, wherever there is such a structure, is it legitimate? And and there's a burden of proof. It has to prove its legitimacy. It's not automatically self-legitimating. So wherever there's a structure of authority, domination, hierarchy, uh, patriarchal family, uh, you know, international affairs, anything in between, uh, the question of legitimacy of the structure arises. Sometimes you can justify a structure of dominance, but very rarely. And wherever you can't, it ought to simply be dismantled. And that's across the spectrum. And it can be done in many different ways. So say the, uh, uh, the feminist revolution of the last roughly generation had a big impact on certain kinds of dominant structures. Okay, that's quite significant. Uh, worker-owned enterprises set the basis up for a different kind of economic and political structure, and they exist. Some of them, in fact, are quite substantial. Uh, the Mondragon conglomerate in Spain is, uh, first of all, economically quite successful. It's one of the few parts of the Spanish economy that's going to survive this uh, austerity, uh, uh, devastating austerity policies. Uh, But it also is democratic in a way which doesn't show up in method of voting and so on. And I think those are kind of the major factors that have to be looked at. kinds you mentioned are important, and I don't, you could debate exactly how it could be done, but uh, I mean, I don't see how any complex system can avoid some sort of representative democracy, and we just can't have a vote on everything, but uh, representatives should be accountable, recallable, uh, subject to constant uh, surveillance and control and interchangeable, and uh, that does have... You know, there can be negative aspects to that, but I can't see that much can be avoided. Well, um, what is there to say now? No, thank you. you I mean, you've made an extraordinary contribution as an academic, 
as a, as, a, as, a, as a contribution to linguistics, to philosophy, to public life for a very, very long time. And the fact that you're here today, aged 85, is an extraordinary testament to your vitality and your energy and, your, and, the, and the number of people that were excited about your visit is really striking. It was the Twitter excitement, the number of times we were asked for tickets. I've never seen so much passion arise when we declare that the tickets are already all gone. And there was fury at the gates of the castle. And that's because everybody wanted to get in to hear you. And uh, we know why. So many, many thanks on behalf of everybody here. Okay, so that's the end. Um, I only have a couple things to say. Um, there's no doubt that Nam Chomsky had lots of uh, talent and very educated. He was with MIT for years. Um, why didn't he ever say anything about what he knew? And why does he say to us, future generations will not forgive us for the apathy of silence? Excuse me. He didn't ever come out and say anything to anybody about what he knows. He pointed out everything that's wrong. I feel sorry for his grandchildren. He did nothing with the knowledge he had. Just a cushy job.